If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's essentially the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need on one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your pod right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your pod on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Let's Process This with Melinda Hill. That's me. Hi. Oh, my God. This is the podcast filmed live, air quotes, on Instagram live. It is a podcast that explores overcoming or processing trauma and how that informs the creative process. My intention with this show is to provide light, relief, healing through humor and inspirational stories of my inspiring guests which empower audiences to know that we are not defined by what happened to us, but rather by what we do with what happens to us and to inspire creatives to keep creating and to become better artists. I know as a creative person myself, if I'm not creating, I tend to be destroying uh, myself or other things. So my intention here is just to help people to transcend their story and rewrite their narrative to something that serves and honors them themselves their, themselves better and gets back to why we're all sort of really here, meaning on the planet collectively, which I believe is to help each other because when one creative heals themselves, they can also heal countless others through and with their work. So I'm a comedian interested in healing trauma, um, into I'm interested in turning trauma into treasure. So hopefully you will find this show hilarious. H-E-A-L-arious. You're welcome for that, hilarious. If you believe in this cause and you would like to support it, um, I appreciate you so much. Um, please subscribe to this podcast for free at the link in my bio and share it and tag your friends below who might benefit from this. Um, if you want to contribute financially, that is awesome. <laughs> and I so appreciate it. As you know, I'm a comedian and I'm not able to earn from touring right now and other such usual ways. So if you feel so inspired, you can certainly send a Venmo, which um, is pinned in this uh, on this video and in my bio, or become a patron on my Patreon. Is it Patreon or Patreon? I never know how to say that. Someone can DM me later. But help support this cause if you believe in it. And I appreciate you so much doing that. Thank you so much. I'm having super awesome creative genius guests dare I say, on here every week. Now, let's welcome my fabulous guest, Tom Stern. Okay. Yay! Filmmaker, writer, director, husband, and dad. And he also made the flyer for this week's show, Let's Process This with Melinda Hill, which looks like a really fabulous Japanese amusement park. 
what doesn't he do really? Hi, Tom. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm terrific. I, I'm now much better because I was frustrated because I couldn't join you. You know, I know it's so nobody it's technology and I'm just happy that you made it because it's not always easy, but I wanted no. to ask you, Tom, so you've worked on Crank Anchors, like all these cool things, Crank Anchors, the Andy Milanaka show, Kevin Hart's Guide to Black History, Freaked. And now I happen to know that you're in New York right now calling from a, a mystery vehicle. Tell us what you're working on now, Tom Stern. I have just been interviewing Gibby Haynes from the Buttle Surfers. He just got out of this car. This is where he was sitting. Oh, my gosh. And he just left. I'm in Brooklyn in Red Hook where he lives. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interviewing him because we're making a Butthole Surfers documentary, the definitive Butthole Surfers documentary. Um, That's I, so I've cool. I've been friends with those guys since I was 19, you know, and um, was a giant fan of theirs and then started working with them. I made movies with them and um, been friends with them for, you know, 35 years. So we realized my friend Alex Halpern, who's my oldest friend in the world who I grew up with in Westchester, um, he said, called me the other week and was like, hey, Tom, what, what about doing a, doc, a butthole surfers documentary? And I was like, yeah, that's obviously what I should do. <laughs> so, yeah, so now we're doing it. And um, it's going great. Gibby is an amazing creative genius who is a legend and just a super brilliant guy who has been through so much, but a survivor. Talk about surviving trauma and, like, He's now a young adult author. He published his first young adult novel and he's working on his second one. He has a lovely wife who's a responsible like lawyer um, and um, a lovely kid who's 10 years old and a, like a baseball, little league baseball star. Because Gibby was actually a, a great athlete. He was captain of the basketball team at Trinity University. That's where the Buttle Surfers started when he met Paul Leary. But he was like a all-American kid, you know, who then became a fucking weird underground rock star. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So, how did how did he what 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 was that journey from athlete to rock star? Like, what happened for him? Is it and and well, let me Paul back Larry. up. Is this what the documentary is about? Yeah, I mean, well, it's about the whole story, not just Gibby. Uh, Gibby was like Gibby's. There's two creative geniuses that met and started the butthole surfers. One was Gibby, one was Paul Leary, who is another Texan who, and they met at Trinity, right? And they um, were just both students there. Gibby was like an accounting major and Paul was a business major. And they met and realized they were both really, really deeply weird and had the same crazy sense of humor. So they started a zine called skin disease of the month or something. And it was just like, they found horrible skin diseases and made up fake explanations for them. But they've had this transgressive kind of aesthetic from the beginning where they, they're kind of the, the, the kind of artists who just are drawn to the kind of most horrifying thing you can think of, but then do something really creative with it, you know? So I have a similar aesthetic where I like to confront my worst fears in the form of 
transgressive comedy, you know, basically. Let's talk about that. What are your worst fears? What what kinds of things have you overcome or, or had to deal with and what kind of obstacles? Well, I mean, my life is a series of spectacular flame outs, you know, in a sort of Buster Keaton style. Like, I've had bad drug problems. I mean, you know, I, we cannot cover all my trauma in a half an hour, but I could give you the very short version, which is... I grew up with a very stable, privileged childhood. You know, I was like upper middle class white kid in Westchester County, New York. My parents were like liberals, great, wonderful people. But I, you know, they were doctors and they, I didn't have to worry about money. And so I was, grew up in the 70s, which was a weird decade that we didn't understand how weird it was. But in the 70s, we were like taking insane risks and we were being extreme and the idea of PC didn't exist, you know, and we were just maniacs, and we thought that was that was a good way to live, you know. So, like in the seventies, drug use was not even considered dangerous, was it? It was celebrated. Like if you watch Saturday Night Live, they're all making jokes about how much cocaine they're doing, and there's nobody, no, like the sentiment of like, "Hey guys, this might not be good." That never comes up. That's almost like now, like it's so on trend to be healthy that if suddenly one day it was not on trend, it was like, oh my God, that actually ended up being severely detrimental and addictive. Right. Yeah. So Gibby's had drug problems that are well documented. What were his drug problems? What were your guys' drug problems? So I grew up like, here's the funny short version. When I was... In kindergarten, you know, I, I was a Mad Magazine fanatic. And they have, in the 70s and Mad, they had a lot of, like, anti-drug propaganda because, you know, it was a responsible publication for children, right? So they had a lot of, like, beautifully done anti-drug uh, propaganda. So I just believed Mad was sort of, I believe that was a good way to look at the world. So I just adopted that attitude. And I remember on a kindergarten school bus the children mindlessly chanting this rhyme that was popular at the time. And this was, this was, this was a rhyme. It was marijuana, marijuana, LSD, LSD, doctors make it, teachers take it. Why can't we, why can't we, right? So did you do a lot of, did you do a lot of LSD? I did, but not then. I'm talking about when I was like seven. Okay. And so, so this was the culture. I was like, no, I'm giving you the, this is a setup, right? Mm -hmm. So I was the kid who was like, I'll tell you why you don't do LSD, because it's bad for you, it's dangerous, and you might die. (laughs) So I was like, and then when I was 10, I visited my older sister at college and saw her smoking a joint with some hippie actor. She was like a drama student at Kirkland College. And um, I was horrified. And I was like, what is my, my sister's a fucking drug addict. And I was mad at her. But then cut to two years later, and like I find joints in my brother's drawer who I idolize. And then cut to a year after that, I'm a full on stoner, you know? So I loved being a stoner and had a great time in my teenage years because I wasn't really escaping from any dire situation. I was escaping from upper middle class suburban boredom. So for me, drugs were an adventure and my kind of circle of friends, we were the freaks, right? Like. In, in my high school, it was very, very strictly divided into cliques. There was jocks, preps, greasers, who were the, like, thugs who beat you up. 
and and the freaks and like most people were normies i guess unaffiliated but then the freaks that was my clique and we were just like six or seven people you know did you what did just you guys like, have like uh, the mohawk and the no no we had stringy long hair and grateful dead t-shirts okay you know i'm 55. well i was so, just trying to get the fashion um, the fashion right yeah no it was like just hippies got it and um and then but we were smart, you know, we were like the smart stoners. And so we we weren't really, we were a, a marginal group, but it was very strictly defined. So my identity became like teenage druggy. Okay, so right? did that escalate to some sort of traumatic thing or were you functional, able to get through college? Did it cause no problems? No problems until later in life. Okay. So, because I wasn't, I didn't have an addictive personality. I didn't, I never developed a real problem. Okay. So you were I recreational druggy. I was later mostly in into, you know, smoking pot and taking acid and mushrooms. Um, so anyway, and I didn't even like cocaine. I thought it was kind of boring. When you know? did it become a problem? Like at what point? 15 years later. Okay. And how did that come about? Because I went to Hollywood. I went to film school. You know, I didn't really ever work hard in my life until I got to college. Like I was able to skate through school without ever doing homework just because I was smart enough to bullshit my way through the class. And teachers liked me because I said smart things in class, but I never did any work at all. So, you know, I got like A's and B's based on being a bullshit artist. But then I went to college and I was like, oh my God. My parents were paying a lot of money for this. I better fucking do something. So I tried really hard. I worked my ass off and learned how to make films. You know? Where'd you that go to college? NYU. Okay, so you made a bunch of films at NYU. Do you feel like it was a great education for you? It was a great education in terms of meeting people who I would work with and be friends with the rest of my life, like That's Alex great. Winter, mm -hmm. who I met freshman year, day one of registration in the registrar's office, like Alex was the first person I met because I recognized him from the Peter Pan commercials because he was a child actor. So he was in the Peter Pan commercials and played Little John. And I was like, that's the kid from the Peter Pan commercial. So I was like, you know, I just, we started talking, we hit it off and then we started making movies together and we were partners for like 10 years. Well, know, directing, co-writing. Oh, really? So you guys wrote, so after you made your college films, would you make like three features or something required films? And then you got out, did you guys go on to create like a few other films or shows or what was your Yeah, well, what happened trajectory? was we were making movies at NYU together and then his acting career took off. He got Bill and Ted's and Lost Boys. So he left, like we were all living together in Greenwich Village on Thompson Street in an apartment. And then he left to do Lost Boys and then Bill and Ted's. So he never even graduated NYU, but I stayed there and graduated and then joined him in Hollywood, essentially. And so then we were very lucky because he was then Bill from Bill and Ted's and that got us into a lot of doors, you know? Okay, so, so let me ask about graduating NYU because I know that many of you graduated who went on to be very successful, but also many dropped out like such as famously Paul Thomas Anderson dropped out after like three days or whatever. So do you think it's different, different case by case? Like some people, it was their time to go and some people needed that full for four years as an artist. I think that 
I'll just be honest and say that the teachers at NYU when I were there was there were not particularly good, and I don't think I learned much from them. Wow! But I was I was in Greenwich Village. I was eighteen, and I had access to film equipment and a bunch of talented young potential filmmakers like Alex Winter and all the other famous people that graduated from them. He had just been there. Um, so it was awesome. I was yeah. in New York City making movies and, and meeting amazing people. Yeah. But I do think that my parents vastly overpaid, okay. <laughs> you know, like $40,000 a year for to be taught by people who really couldn't make it in the film business, you know? Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, those, those, you know, that big old Woody Allen line of those, those who uh, can't do teach those, those who can't teach, teach at NYU. But, um, <laughs> you know, so the, um, I have not heard that, but, but wow. His, his version is teach Jim. Those who cannot teach, teach Jim. That's but, funny. Um, I changed it. Um, so listen, um, when you guys started making your projects together, it was easier because he was on Bill and Ted's as an actor. So that opened that the kind of doors where you guys could waltz in and be yes. like, Hey, we're NYU grads. Uh, we have this idea for a series. Like what happened there? Walk us through that. Well, we went out and we started writing screenplays because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be Stanley Cooper, you know, okay. from a young age, I idolized him. So I wanted to be a feature film writer, director, and so did Alex. That's what we were doing there. Um, so we came out to Hollywood and started writing screenplays. And we wrote a bunch of screenplays and they weren't very good because it's hard to write a screenplay. So, you know, it takes a long time to learn that craft, but. Um, what ultimately made you, you know, good? What, what ultimately made you good at writing screenplays? Just doing it for a long time, you know, and, um, and, and persisting, like you can't give up. If you write a screenplay and it's shitty, that doesn't mean you might not one day write a great screenplay. And yet you have to remember that because it's, it's um, the best screenwriters in the world have written totally shitty movies, right? So that the odds of writing a great screenplay right off the bat are very small for anybody, you know? Yeah, the odds of writing a serviceable, formulaic Hollywood product screenplay are decent if you know how to do it. Okay, if so you don't how, know how to do it. They're not good. So how do you, you, you do can't it? Like beat yourself up about it for failing. Right, I agree. So how do and plus you have to you have to churn out the those crap drafts to get that good one. That's how you become yes. good. At, that's how standups become good. You got to go do that's your right. bombs and and get it right and, and course correct and learn from from it's falling. Like, you know what it's like. I'm sorry, to cut you off. That's okay. We're, the ideas are flying um, and we're going to be yeah. jumping in. So there's a term in modern therapy called exposure therapy, right? And that means that if you are traumatized by something and you can't deal with something, you have to keep doing it. You have to do it over and over because the first time you do it, you will be freaked out and upset. The second time you do it, you'll be just a little bit less upset. And the 500th time you do it, you'll actually be not upset at all. You'll, you'll be able to, because it's, it's like what they do with horses in New York City, like a police horse in Central Park is trained by having a gun fired next to its head wow. over and over until they don't care. That's exposure therapy. So if you actually work on things that terrify you by 
just doing it, mm -hmm. you're going to be upset and you're going to be less upset the more you do it until you can actually master it and be and 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 not be phased by it. Yeah, that's kind of like the beginning of, of anything. It's always like rocky and a learning curve. Now, so when you guys, what was the first project you sold? So the first thing we did was called Impact Video Magazine. And it was like a no budget art thing, underground art um, scene on video. where we had people that we loved, like Robert Williams, a painter we loved, and Survival Research Labs, who are these robot performance artists. Public Enemy, James Addiction, Bill Hicks, um, like just really cool, you know, underground-ish artists of the time that we were into. And it was produced by this guy, Stuart Shapiro, who had did Mondo New York, which was this underground thing. So we kind of like, we were, you know, in this kind of underground rock world with the Butthole Surfers, Beat Puppets, Chili Peppers. They were our friends and we were kind of, that was our world more than Hollywood, actually, you know? Um, so Flea gave us a break. He let us direct a music video because he loved our college film. Cool. And um, he said our college film, Squeal of Death, made him so excited he picked up his bass and started jamming. And, you know, like, that's a great thing to hear when you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, 22. And um, that's awesome. And you're not sure whether you're ever going to make a living in this business, right? Um, that's, oh, that's, that's almost better than money in, in showbiz is like, is this really a career? Am I really good? Right. Is this something Did I make a good decision? Is this, right. <laughs> or is this a hobby? Going to medical school? Is this a should traumatic to, hobby? Maybe I should have gone to beauty school. So, um, I do like, I like putting on makeup. Did you, um, so when, so, so you guys sold a bunch of stuff and then, so what, what went, what went wrong? Well, Why? we didn't really sell a bunch of stuff. That was, we did impact video magazine for like, we took a salary of like a hundred dollars a week. You know, I mean, it was, we weren't making money. We were just trying to do stuff. Um, and then we started getting money jobs, like the chili pepper, like impact came first. We got a development deal, I think, or no, yeah. Like we wrote a screenplay at Universal, which was terrible and was a traumatic experience for me. <laughs> Why? Um, because it sucked. I didn't know how to do it. We were trying to write a mainstream comedy and we just didn't know how to do it. Did you guys so, like grab Save the Cat or like how did you have to figure it out? Just a million. There was no Save the Cat. Oh, this shit. was 1989. Dang. Yeah. So, but there was, there was Sid Field. Sid Field was the Save the Cat. But it doesn't really, the answers are not all in there because I've never been satisfied with writing formulaic stuff. It just feels bad to me. So I, if I write something that's exactly what Save the Cat says, it's not going to make me feel good about it, you know? So what, so, so, so what is your process with that then? How do you find your imaginative structure that works for you? It's difficult. Mm -hmm. Probably the hardest screenplay I ever wrote that, that went on to be a success well you success it went on to get made by a, a hollywood studio was american werewolf in paris very traumatic experience how so since we don't have a lot of time let me just tell you my big traumatic experiences in hollywood okay so i had early success with alex we did a show called the idiot box on mtv which I think we sold them because Bill and Ted's was a hit. And they were like, sure, Alex Winter, why not? 
And we, we did that for literally $250 each a week. That was our salary. And um, we just did everything. You know, it was like just very low budget, but we made the props and we put on a show and it was super fun. And it was not a big hit, but good enough to impress some people. And Joe Roth at 20th Century Fox liked it. We, long story, we got Fox interested in a, a screenplay and then we made that movie Freaked. And um, Freaked, we, when we made Freaked, I felt like, oh my God, I'm 25. I'm making a feature film for a major studio. I'm, I'm a fucking genius. I'm on top of the world. I'm the king of shit and no one can challenge me. Yeah. You know, so I was like, suffering from grandiosity and as you'd expect a young person who just gets this dream job immediately you know like after three years in hollywood so then we make the movie great experience joe roth the head of the studio leaves the new guy peter chernin first day in the job goes to see a test screening of our movie which is a disaster he decides not to release it and i'm suddenly like i go from like hot shit young director to complete failure who's made an unreleasable film mm. uh, that wasted $10 million you know, of a studio's money. Mm. And so it's pretty devastating. Yeah. You know? And then I remember speaking of Save the Cat, Alex and I were in the um, Robert McKee story structure lecture. Mm-hmm. I think in the Writers Guild. And that's when the phone call, I got the phone call from Harry Uffland, our producer said, it's dead. They're not going to release it. <laughs> wow, the timing on that. How was that? So I was, I was trying to learn how to write a screenplay uh-huh. from Robert McKee <laughs> as I was just informed that I'm a complete failure and I probably never work again. <laughs> and um, so I was devastated from that. But then it was like another devastation shortly after that was my mom died. Oh. And... Then after that, I got the American Werewolf job, but they fired me as a director because of Freaks. So I was supposed to write and direct the sequel to American Werewolf in London. Okay. And so we, we wrote, me and Tim Burns, a frequent writing partner, wrote the screenplay and they loved it. And they, you know, I was contracted to direct it. And they said, we love the screenplay. Guess what? We're going to make it a big movie instead of a small movie because it's so good. The bad news is you can't direct it because you're obviously not a very good director because your movie can't even be released. So, you know, I had to have a courtesy meeting with them, whatever. It came out, it was the biggest piece of shit. I can't watch that movie. It's absolutely nauseating how bad it is. They wow. kept one line of dialogue of our script. Wow. The tone is the tone is retarded. It's supposed to be like the first one, like a, a genuinely scary and genuinely funny and witty movie. Mm. The film they shot zero wit there's not a single laugh in it it's awful it's a piece of shit okay but it was very traumatizing and i was very bitter you know because i was like i wanted to direct that movie so bad yeah and i got fired and then they brought in some hack and it was a piece of shit Mm. they took out all the best parts of our screenplay Mm. but i still got credit and money so then with that money i was like fuck hollywood and i was like started a band with my friend and I was just going to be a punk rock guy and fuck Hollywood. I'm sick of this place. And that was enabled by a fat bank account from that check. Okay. So I developed a bad speed problem. Really? Because 
Well, yeah, because I was always mildly depressive and speed helped me self-medicate. Okay. So, so it I, like... Yeah, and I st- yeah, so I started with moderate use, literally just to help me write, you know, which it, it, it worked. Like it had the same effect as like ADD medicine. It like took me, my scattered thoughts and focused them. I was able to sit as a you know, typewriter you know, in a computer. Okay, but, um, so like what did that look like? And this is going to cut off and then I'm going to have to restart it. So hold on. But what did that look like? Like morning to night, what was your speed slash writing schedule itinerary? So when I wrote Freaked, I would do a tiny bump of speed every morning in the bathroom, unbeknownst to Tim Burns or Alex Winter. I was literally self-medicating. And I would do, I was self-medicating. And um, what was the question? What was your writing slash speed schedule? So that, okay. So at that point, it was, you know, I, I think actually quite healthy. I was just, I didn't have a doctor's prescription, but I did a tiny amount to focus me and make, make me sit and type. Okay. And I would type all day. And I think we wrote a really funny screenplay. But later, so I, I still haven't told you the big crisis. This was just a... This is actually what led to... Hello. Okay. So, good. sorry, I got a phone call that interrupted. Okay. So, mom dies. American Werewolf is a fucking devastating disaster. Um, I get super depressed. Writer's block. I can't. I have no imagination. I just see blackness and despair. And I get suicidal. And I feel then, like at the age of 28, like a fucking total failure who really would be better off dead. So how much was, do you think the speed was contributing to this? How much was circumstantial and how much was just the speed affecting your mind? That, that was not the speed. When I was depressed, I wasn't even doing speed. Okay. Like at that point, because I, I had kind of a, like I had a built in healthy um, impulse to not do drugs if I was depressed. Okay. Like seriously depressed. Yeah. Like I kept myself focused and effective with small doses of speed. But if I was depressed and I did speed, I'd freak out because I'd be like, what are you doing, Tom? You're ruining your life. You're a drug addict. What are you doing? You know? Yeah. So when I was super depressed, I wasn't doing any drugs. Okay. I was just depressed. So how, um, so this, this sort of culmination of traumatic events, your, your mother's passing, um, the, the movie stuff at what, what, how did you get through this dark night of the soul in your hero's journey? <laughs> it, was, it was more like a dark decade, <laughs> dark of decade soul, but, of the soul. Um, I would say that I just kept stumbling along and for whatever reason, I was able to function enough to stay kind of employed at the margins of Hollywood. And, um, you know, I, I, so my first big flame out was, oh, sorry. So I got depressed. Then I found a, a doctor and I found like a, a, a Zoloft. Okay. So, so how did you I find, taking, how did you find that doctor? Oh, I, okay. I, w- I went to Toronto to write with Tim Burns because I was trying to generate new material and I was fucking just nothing, nothing. <laughs> it was nothing. So, Oh, uh, you froze again, Tom. Okay, there you are. It here was, hey, Melinda, when people keep calling you over and over and over the same person, 
you're obviously declining to talk to them, I but hate, they just keep calling. I hate that. And interrupting you. And I'm just going to keep hitting decline, but they just keep going. Why? Anyway. Yeah, why? So, um, um, where was I? Um, so you went to Canada, you couldn't write, and you found a doctor somehow. Couldn't write. Couldn't write. I finally just had to, after like four days of being blocked with Tim and being like ashamed of how uncreative I was. I was like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm fucking depressed. I can't think of anything. I'm, I don't know what to do. And so I, I, I just went back to LA. Like I called my brother. I talked to my family members, you know, so I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. I'm depressed. Um, so my, my father's a psychologist, you know? And so I, I, I thought, well, I, I should see somebody, but in, in the airport, Going back in the Toronto airport, I saw this book listening to Prozac. And I was like, what's that? I had no idea what antidepressants were. Mm. So I, I picked it up and I was like, holy shit, there's a drug that cures this. <laughs> and so I was suddenly really excited. And I went and found a psychiatrist and got on Zoloft and I, I recovered. I was like, not depressed. And then I was so happy to not be depressed. I was like, woo, party. <laughs> and I started doing a lot of speed and coke and you know, uh -huh. having a great time mm -hmm. until I was really out of control. And I created this thing called the Chimp Channel in the 90s, which was uh, like SCTV with chimps. And okay. Tim Burns and I created this. So it was great. I love chimps. You know, um, we did all these chimp parodies of movies and then we sold them the idea of doing this as a, a full show. And we did it. And then on day one of principal photography, I thought it would be a great idea if I made a mission statement, like, like Tom Cruise and uh, Jerry Maguire, you know, where I gather the staff. And just before we roll cameras on the first scene, I just want to say something to all you folks. And I thought, you know what's going to make put this over the top if I do it naked? So I took off all my clothes. I told the cameraman to shoot this mission statement. And I proceeded to like froth at the mouth and rave like a madman for 10 minutes and terrify everyone on set. And then I walked away thinking, man, that was great. Ah, I am, I'm just the wittiest guy. Wow. So I that was sitting at the Algonquin table. But what they did was they hired the nation of Islam to guard the stage because it was a black owned stage called shades flight near the Burbank airport. And for some reason, their security contract was the nation of Islam. So the next day, there were giant African-American men with bow ties surrounding the stage for one reason, to keep me out. Because wow. I was fired. Um, so that was not fun. And I got depressed. And um, like the next thing I did was went to Woodstock 99 with a young Patton Oswalt, where we were... Um, man in the street reporters and that turned into a rape fest so i was like i was depressed but i put on a happy face and tried to be funny in the field talking to people and then it turned into a rape fest <laughs> it was a fucking nightmare it was like vietnam oh my but gosh that's beside the point um but then basically i got a job on the man show doing chimp bits because the Dan daniel kellison I know Daniel. Love my chimp bits. And yeah, so he wanted me to do, um, and I knew Jimmy because I'd been in this Perry Project thing playing a Romanian gangster named Yergi. That's how I met Jimmy Kimmel 
when he was still like a DJ, you know. Um, and Don Barris and Tony Barbieri, these were my friends. So basically, I got a job in the man show. I did monkey bits for them. And I just kind of recovered. And again, when I was depressed, I didn't do drugs. I, you know, I was, you know, I didn't have a drug problem for several years, but then I got revved up again. I was like the Mike Tyson kind of addict where I didn't do it when I was depressed. I did it when I was happy mm-hmm. because when I was happy, I felt like, Woo-hoo! you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's party. Let's just go crazy. Whereas when I was depressed, I was like, Tom, you're irresponsible. You're a fucking failure. You need to lay in bed and not do anything because you can't trust yourself to do the right thing. So, you know, so I guess I kept, see, I kept working, you know, and then. So Zoloft, writing, Zoloft and, I was writing for the wild thornberries when I freaked out again and went to jail. What? For Why? For speed possession okay but really because i lost my mind i was up for two weeks and i had a psychotic break and the cops came and brought me to jail and i was like in the ding ward which is the crazy what is that what does a psychotic break on speed look like what did that look like it looks like eight hours of uh schizophrenia okay so someone called the cops on you because you were like on my porch raving at my girlfriend okay was hiding on the roof and um you know it was a mess but um so what, I, I told what the were people you at nickelodeon that, that 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 i would hand in the script i needed a few more days and i got out of jail finished that but then um you cleaned up my act for a while but then the next had another disaster wait wait this no, i think that was this kind of that reminds me of after. this kind of reminds me of uh, the Jerry Stahl movie. Yeah, the, the TV writer. But, but it, it wasn't that depressing. Like if I made my version, it would be a lot funnier and, and have more joy in it. Like he was a very dark kind of. He was a comedy writer, I guess, but he was very dark. Like I was never that dark. I was more of a, a like happy to be a clown. You, you know, were, you were more you were less permanent midnight and more permanent morning. Yes. I was more like permanent goofball, just like happy to be outrageous at a party for a laugh. You were permanent party. Yeah. Permanent party favorite. I I always was, I always had a a instinct to do outrageous transgressive jokes because I was super shy, like as a child and always obsessed with girls and in love with girls who I was afraid to talk to. But to get their attention, sometimes I do something outrageous. So, like in funny story, in second grade, we had to give um, Valentine's Day cards to everybody, and I had a wicked crush on this girl, Laurel Tin. Like, I was obsessed with her, but I never would talk to her. But now I had an excuse to talk to her because you had to give a card to everybody. So I, I worked on a poem for her, and what I finally came up with, and I was in second grade, okay, like six, seven years old was uh, she was Laurel, I was Tom. So I was like, if you were a Laurel tree and I a Tomcat too, I would climb upon your branch and, and I'm looking for the rhyme, like take a pee on you. That is so funny. So I go to class and like, I watch her open the envelope and she's like, she's like this. Oh, Tom Stern. Oh, that kid. Okay. Ah! 
the teacher came over and took it, and the teacher did this. What's that? Oh, dear. <laughs> and then my mom came and take me out. Yeah, I give it a traumatic event. And I'm like, oh, you girls don't like it when you do something that's about peeing on them. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I, I was just like a coping mechanism. You know, when you get to be 55 at my age, you can kind of see the real motivations behind what you did decades ago when you didn't realize it then. Yeah, we, we, and, we have a little more information now. So I want to ask you, like, when you got, so after you leveled out from after going to the, the psych ward and et cetera, from the, from the meltdown or the, the psychotic break, how did you get back to, 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 to feeling good again? I guess, what was your road back? Well, you know, I would just have cycles of depression that would last a few months where it was even when I was on antidepressants, like you still get depressed, just not as deeply. So I wouldn't get suicidal. I'd just be staying in bed a lot. And you know what I would do? I'd watch Turner classic movies because you know, when you're, when you're in Hollywood and you're afraid that you're a failure, you get bitter and jealous of people that are successful. And it's like, you can't look at us magazine because it makes you want to puke because they're all successful people. And, you know, and then, so I would watch Turner classic movies because all those people are dead and I don't have to be jealous of them. <laughs> so I could watch great movies and learn something without being consumed by petty jealousy, which makes me really ashamed because I don't want to be that person who's jealous of people yeah. that are more talented and successful. That's well, horrible. it's really, so, it's, it's really ugly too, because when we have our successes, we want other people to be able to be happy and, and not like turning it into some reason to beat themselves up or shame exactly. themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, how can yeah. I be that for other people? Even when you feel like, Oh my God, I might never work again. You know, Well, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of my, dear friend Josh Gardner's great line that uh, he said many years ago, which is, you know, whenever my friends have success, a little piece of me dies. <laughs> but, you know, also, I think energetically, like vibrationally, like it, it's really nice to celebrate. Like when I see someone, I go, Absolutely. that's amazing. Yeah. Good for them. I wish I bless, you know, I, I bless them on that. Or, you know, I just do like a little yeah. mental. It's, because feeling, feeling but, jealous is so like, yeah. eh. but okay. Yeah. So you got, you got through that time with the classic movies. Like what, like what did that well, time inform? How did that change you as a creative? Well, I'll tell you first, if you love movies, if you want to be a movie maker, you love comedy, you want to be a comedian. You got to remember that. That's the whole point. That's why you got it. That's why you did it, right? You were a kid who loved this thing and then you wanted to do it yourself. So you have to strip away all the bullshit. And through therapy, I learned that the most important insight I had in therapy that first time recovering from a suicidal major depression in my late 20s was you cannot, your self-worth or self-sense of yourself cannot be about your career in showbiz. It can have nothing to do with that. That's right. Because that's... Yeah. A, unhealthy, B, stupid and shallow. Yeah. And C, there is no C because it's stupid and shallow to, 
to think that your worth as a human is is your success in this business that's filled with awful people that are trying to exploit other people <laughs> and you know it does not align with any core value system I have. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be like raised by proud liberals, you know, fighting racism in the sixties and marching with Martin Luther King. So I never had any, um, I wasn't burdened with a lot of the fucked up ideology that a lot of people just are raised with, but you know, still that's, you know, I, I have the guilt of being uh, an upper middle class white kid who never really had to struggle as a child in any material way. So that, you know, I'm ashamed of that. Like, do you think I'm that, ashamed that there were, what? Do you think that affected your, your ambition at all to not have to struggle or did it help? Well, you find your own struggle because it's not easy being an artist even if you're rich, right? which I wasn't rich. I was just middle class, but I didn't, I was comfortable. So I, I'm unfamiliar with the, uh, you know, like a childhood where money was a big issue, right? Um, you know, my father was a psychologist. He wasn't a, a, a billionaire, but. Um, what was what your was the question? What was your own struggle? Your own struggle was just your own inner demons of feeling like a failure and, and things yes, like that. My, the core of my inner struggle was I'm a fraud. Okay. I'm not a real artist. Um, I'm, I'm a spoiled rich kid from Westchester who had the luxury of going to an art school because he didn't have to worry about making a living, you know, because that wasn't one of his core values. Like my parents never taught me how to make money. So all my siblings were all horrible with money. We don't know how to make money. And the only money any of us has ever made is like almost by accident because I managed to write enough come to Hollywood to make money. Um, so for a lot of my career, I've been, you know, having money problems because I couldn't pay the rent. And when I had a family, I couldn't afford the mortgage. And I went through a personal bankruptcy, you know, um, because when you have the burden of having to support kids and, and, you know, a family, you can't be a, you have to take any job you're offered. You know, you can't be picky and you can't be a snobby artist. You have to just try to make a living. So I've done a lot of crappy shows and reality shows that I never wanted to do, but I was happy to have the job, always happy to have the job. You know? yeah. um, I don't know if I've answered your question, but oh. it's like my core, I think the core issue for a lot of people is you're afraid you're a fraud. It's a, you know, it's got a name, right? right. Imposter syndrome. Right. And I've talked about it with many fellow artists and the truth is you're not a fraud. You're just a person who wants to be an artist and is trying to be an artist, right? Mm. And it's hard. It's, it's not hard, easy. Yeah. And yeah. I guess the number one thing is you got to keep trying. Yeah. Because when you keep trying, you get better. You can't write a great screenplay your first time. It's just, I mean, maybe it's like maybe John Hughes did it, <laughs> but that doesn't really matter. It's just, it's, excuse me. That is statistically insignificant. Yeah. It is irrelevant. There yeah. may be some geniuses who did it great right away. That's irrelevant. You, like most people, if you're not one of those geniuses, you have to work many years 
endure failure and you have to feel like shit because people think you're mediocre and you're not as funny as that guy. And you know, that whoever is the popular actor or comedian or filmmaker of the day, you know, you're not them. So you have to slowly just, it's like exposure therapy throughout your life. Hopefully you can keep your head screwed on straight enough to just keep trying and right. it's going to get better. It's going to get easier. And someday you're going to, you know, hopefully have a, a moment where you're like, holy shit, this is fun. You know, and I, I, I'm having fun writing right now. And even though it was a struggle and I hated myself for, you know, 7,200 hours of sitting at a computer trying to be funny and not feeling funny, um, someday you might actually get in that state where it's flowing and, and you feel wonderful and, and it's great. And you're like, this is why I, this is what I wanted to do. You yeah. know, this is what I wanted to do when I wanted to make movies or comedy or whatever. Okay. So you're working on, <laughs> but, you're uh, working on something you love right now. You're also working on the Gibby Haynes documentary and, uh, well, it's the Battle Surfers documentary. Right. So Paul Leary, Teresa Nervosa, King Coffee, and Jeff Pincus were band members. So they're all amazing. And I can't wait to see that because I grew up with those bands. And so, like, yeah. it sounds like definitely therapy helped you, definitely Zoloft, definitely psychiatry, definitely writing it out, continuing to show up as an artist. And is there any other advice you could give to people who are struggling with, with, their own personal traumas, obstacles, depression, or struggles of being an artist, imposter syndrome. This is, yes, this is stuff that's going to actually be really valuable to you. Not necessarily now, but maybe in 10 years. And then you're going to be able to think about it without all the emotional anguish that stops you from even wanting to think about it right now. And the kind of stuff that you are even ashamed to admit to your therapist might be something that you are able to dig into 20 years from now and make a great, write a great play or write a great book or write a, a great movie or, or do a great piece of performance art or whatever, or a painting or a poem or music because the great, you know, great art that we all love does come from real human, human emotions and to experience the full range of those emotions is invaluable. Yeah, I agree. Right. Especially grieving. Grieving is part of the whole package. Did you, so like, did you, did this in, personally inspire for you any of your current creative projects or projects that came from your, your struggles? Yes. I mean, for my whole life, I've wanted to do personal films, like the great filmmakers I admired, but I, I never really did because I really never had the confidence or the courage to really put myself in front of the microscope. And I think the main struggle I had there was, I don't think people will like me, you know, if I tell the truth, because I don't think the truth is that likable, like the things, my dark thoughts and my shame and um, insecurities and failures and moral fa failures. It's not comfortable to talk about that stuff. But you know, one of my artistic heroes is R. Crumb, the cartoonist mm -hmm. who generated this amazing art out of this relentless self-examination honesty where he drew himself as a creep, as a loathsome creep. I 
all the different versions of himself from like grandiose genius to loathsome creep and everything in between. But he did it with his incredible talent and, and humor. But it blew me away because I'm like, how can this person be this honest about what the sick thoughts in their head? And it's amazing. But I haven't had the courage to do that. But I think now I'm 55 and I actually do have the courage to do that. So I'm, you know, I am working on some personal sort of coming of age. You know, the days in Confused, my version is not Richard Linklater's version. So when I saw that movie, I think at the Toronto Film Festival, like 20 years ago or whatever, you know, I was jealous as hell. I was like, fuck you, Richard Linklater. Fuck you for doing your stoner movie before me. Oh, Tom, this is going to shut down. Yeah. Instagram Live says it's about to shut down in one minute. So sorry to disrupt so, this so interview. So words is don't give up. <laughs> Thank you, you gotta Tom. Keep at it. If you're serious about being an artist, you got to keep at it. Keep at it, kids. And Tom, um, thank you so much. What do you have coming up that that people can enjoy or you'd like to tell us about? Golden Revenge is a TV show I did with Josh Gardner, and it's basically Death Wish meets Homeward Bound. It's a, a revenge, like a 70s pulp um, revenge film. But instead of Charles Bronson, it's a golden retriever. They played by David Cross. Natasha Leggero plays the alcoholic cat, and Ice T plays the bulldog. Where can so people really see that? Where can you see it? Uh huh. That is the best kept secret in Hollywood because the, the <laughs> network went out of business. Network Go, uh, uh, Verizon Go ninety went out of business and is currently looking for a distributor. So hey, if you're a distributor, hey, call Warner Brothers Television. Call, talk, talk to David Decker at Warner <laughs> Brothers Television. <laughs> Hey everyone, if you're you hear that, if you're a distributor, distribute this great what is it? An animated film? What's it called? No, it, it's like homework bound. It's live action. It's the, the human actors are amazing. Mo Mandel and Jessica Makinson, hilarious. Oh, and a bunch of others that will be hurt that I'm not remembering to mention them, but we don't have time. Golden Revenge! Golden Revenge, everyone. And thank you so much for coming to watch Let's Process This with Melinda Hill and Tom Stern. You can listen to this full episode uh, uh, anywhere you get your podcast and contribute at the link in the bio. Thanks so much. Bye!